Happy New Year from the ENT Expert Opinion Team. Kenna here. Hope you had a great holiday season. We took an extended break, as you may have noticed, but we're back, and we are excited about 2014. We've got some excellent interviews on some great topics lined up. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, and give us some feedback at the website entexpertopinion.com. On with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Expert Opinion in ENT podcast series. This is Dan Robinson and today I am interviewing Dr. Alex Saxby on otitis externa. Dr. Saxby is currently working as a consultant at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. Dr. Saxby completed a FISH fellowship at Lucerne in, in Switzerland and he has also completed a fellowship at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver with a focus on neurootology and skull-based surgery. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. It's a pleasure. So, Alex, I'll start off uh, with talking about otitis externa. What is otitis externa? So, otitis externa is essentially any inflammation of the outer ear. So, anywhere from the pinna to the tympanic membrane, and the inflammation can be for a variety of reasons, but fundamentally comes down to either bacterial or a fungal infection of that region. What is the etiology usually of this condition? Interestingly, you might think that it's a deposition of bacteria or fungus to that region, but the reality is that in more often case, the, case, the cases that I've seen is due to a change in the environment of the canal for various reasons that then leads to pathogens that are already there taking an opportunistic approach and then causing the infection itself. So rather than someone swimming in dirty water, for example, and then getting an infection, it's more likely that they were swimming in clean water, but the alkaline conditions of that water then leads to a change in the uh, environment of the canal, which subsequently leads to bacteria that were already there and commensal in the canal then getting a hold and causing an infection. So situations where, where the conditions can change are most commonly water exposure, so either swimming in a swimming pool or, uh, or in the ocean, or trauma, so patients that are very keen on using cotton buds or Q-tips to clean their ears, which causes micro-trauma to the, uh, the skin barrier uh, and then leads to this change of, of condition. And then you have situations like hearing aids, the presence of the hearing aid itself changes the humidity and the environment within the ear canal. So again, you're getting a change in the natural situation, which leads to an overgrowth of the pathogens which were already there. And of course, certain patients will have predispositions to infections, so diabetes or immunosuppression or, or, or skin conditions like eczema, and they're, they're naturally going to be more inclined to develop these infections. You mentioned alkaline or swimming in alkaline uh, environments. Is there any evidence to suggest that you are at higher risk of developing otitis externa associated with a range of pHs? I'm not aware of any particular studies that have looked at that, but we know that the canal itself has a pH of around 5, and uh, most swimming pools, because of the chlorine and so on, would have a pH much higher than that. We also know that acidifying drops have a very positive effect on, on, on infections and in helping to, to cure infections. So 
I don't know if anyone specifically looked at different pHs and seen if uh, the rate of infection is higher or lower, but it's inferred from those other uh, observations. So, and what are the risk factors for developing uh, otitis externa? You've touched on some of them briefly, but what are the risk factors that uh, you consider to be important? I would say the vast majority of cases that I see uh, are follow water exposure in some, in some kind. And in combination with patients that commonly use um, some sort of traumatic um, scratching of the canal or uh, use of, of cotton buds to clear wax, um, those two things in combination almost invariably lead to a, an infection of some kind. Um, the severity of that infection is perhaps more determined by their underlying past medical history, such as diabetes, for example. But the instigation of the infection is usually one of those two things. What is the presentation and history of patients who present to you with otitis externa? So the, the key thing with that is, uh, is timing. So the common time, I mean, of, often it's, it's fairly obvious in an adult, for example, but in a child, when you're not sure whether it's acute otitis media, which has subsequently had a perforation and then had a purulent discharge within the canal, or whether it is, in fact, an otitis externa, and, and often it, they can look very similar when, when you first look, the history is, is key. And, and it's all in the timing. So um, an acute otitis media will, will be a crescendo of pain, which builds up deep within the ear. But the ear itself, the pinna and the outer ear, is not painful to touch. And then they'll get a, a sudden uh, release of, of discharge into the ear canal and, a, and, it, and to a certain extent a relief of that pain. And that's often when they present to you. So that patient will be able to touch the ear, move the ear without any discomfort. The canal will be full of pus. But of course, underlying that is in fact a perforation and an acute otitis media. Whereas your, your typical acute um, otitis externa is, is, um, is immediately painful from the outset. You can't touch the ear to even move the pinna or, or, or manipulate the canal in any way. It causes extreme pain. And of course, they get um, edema and narrowing, therefore, and stenosis of the canal, which you won't get with an acute otitis media and perforation. So the pattern of their presentations is quite different. And if you elicit that history carefully, you should be able to, to distinguish which it is. And uh, you mentioned the, the timing associated with the presentation. Is there a usual time course that you see associated with water exposure, then followed by infection? What is that usual uh, usual time course? Yeah, that, that, it can be variable, but it's usually within you know, 24, 48 hours in my experience. So um, at most, you know, it's going to be uh, two or three days because, of course, by that stage, the, the body is, uh, the water is gone and the body has re-established the, the correct pH and so on. So it's, it's fairly rapid onset after the exposure. When uh, you examine these people from a physical exam point of view, what are the, the findings that you elicit in a patient with otitis externa? Yeah, so on the whole, they, if it's a bacterial, and there's a slight difference here in, in my experience with, with fungal or, or bacterial, but with the, with the classic bacterial otitis externa, they would generally have a narrowed canal. So there'll be some form of edema and inflammation in the tissues, which therefore um, 
stenoses the canal down. Um, so that's almost invariable. And that can be complete such that there's only a pinhole uh, or even no, no obvious lumen at all. Whereas um, otomycosis, uh, often the canal is actually fairly wide. It doesn't have that same inflammatory edema. But of course, the debris within the canal will be present in both cases. In, in the case of otitis externa due to a bacterial cause, it's, it's, it's rarely pus. It's usually more desquamation and um, almost like a dry uh, exudate rather than pure pus. But occasionally you'll get a, a furuncle or, or actual sort of, uh, sort of wet pus, if you like. But on the whole, it's more of a dry, flaking um, desquamation that you, that you find. With fungal, of course, it's a bit different. In that situation, you'll often see the hyphae. You may see the sort of black spores or, or you may see a more candidial um, yeast-like uh, appearance, which is obviously a, a pathognomonic. If you see that, then you can be pretty certain it's going to be a fungal infection. And that will often line a canal which is a normal, of normal size. Of course, if fungal infections are allowed to, to continue, then they can also get stenosis. But so typically you'll find uh, that with a fungal infection, the canal is actually of normal caliber, um, and then the fungus is within that. And then there's, the, there's a third situation in which the patient may have uh, wax debris within the canal and then fungus lying on top of that. I sort of think of that as a sort of saprophytic infection where uh, it's not truly an infection of, it's not truly an otomycosis really, it's, it's the fungus is actually lying on the, on the wax and often if you remove the wax then the problem's solved but that's a sort of slightly um, easier uh, condition to treat and often one that's an incidental finding because they're asymptomatic. Do you uh, pay any credence to the history of patients saying they have an itchy ear and therefore if it is itchy, it is more likely to be a fungal otitis externa? Yeah, I definitely, uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. That's um, undoubtedly been my, my experience. The patient that comes in and says, this has been going on a little while, it's extremely itchy, it's not particularly painful, um, my hearing's not too bad. They they nearly always uh, either hearing aid users, and then they've developed a fungal, a mild fungal infection, um, or, or for whatever reason they've got a fungal infection there. Um, whereas the bacterial infections, they they they're rarely itchy; they're just incredibly painful um, and uh, very acute onset. And um, yeah, so I, I would definitely pay credence to that. And what are the organisms that we normally see in otitis externa? Well, the vast majority are bacterial. I think approximately 90% are bacterial. <clears throat> uh, and so the 10 to 20 would be fungal. And the bacterial, the vast majority are pseudomonal. So that's a common commensal in everyone's ear canal, and it's the one that takes hold. So I think of the bacterial, um, almost half would be pseudomonas. And then the remaining half, half would be gram-negative and half would be gram-positive. And of course, the gram-positives are mainly staph. So with the fungal infections, um, it's uh, almost invariably aspergillus. Um, and occasionally you'll find a candida infection, but only about 10% are candida. The vast majority are actually um, aspergillus. 
moving on to management, uh, firstly, just touching on management for our listeners who may not have access to suction or a microscope, how would you recommend that they went about managing a patient with otitis externa? I guess the situation where you find this is in a hospital, maybe an emergency department, or if you're on the ward and it's not easy to get access to an ENT department or an ENT registrar. Um, and uh, one, one good trick that, that we sort of developed when we were going through training was to use just a cannula, so an IV cannula, remove the needle, trocar, and you're left with a plastic tube, which is really very soft and unlikely to cause too much damage. And then you can place that onto a, a 5 mil syringe um, with a lure lock, so it has a good attachment. And then into the back of that, you pull out the plunger and then um, place the suction tubing, which, which is generally found on any ward, um, straight into the back of the uh, syringe. So that gives you a, a, a fantastic suction, um, at a, and it's very easily available. All of those things are available on any ward uh, or emergency department. And then, of course, you just need a speculum and, and just one of the, the typical speculums you'd find with a like a, a Welsh-Allen um, otoscope, which, again, most most uh, ED departments would have access to, and uh, and the headlights. And if you've got those things, you can pretty much do a, a, a good ear toilet um, in most cases, obviously needing to be cautious of, of, of suctioning too medially, um, but uh, with care, uh, that, that can provide a very good option for someone who doesn't have a microscope. And what about for clinicians who may be working in an environment where they don't have access to suction or a microscope? How would you recommend they went about management? Yeah, so those, those situations, um, what's been shown to be very effective is, is just using uh, tissue. So what, what's described as tissue spears, and that's uh, what I will always tell my patients, actually, when they go home, and I'll, I'll advise the use of tissue spears because, obviously, at home they don't have access to any of those things, and you wouldn't expect patients to be doing that. But one thing that's very easy for them to do is to get a, a Kleenex or a tissue and then just roll the corners between their finger and thumb into what we call a tissue sphere, and that's then placed into the ear canal, and it wicks up the excess fluid or pus or discharge. Uh, and the, the key thing there is that it is a wicking action, not a wiping action. So that the idea is that they simply place the uh, the tissue uh, into the ear canal and let it absorb the fluid and then repeat that as many times as necessary until no further fluid is wicked up. But it's not a wiping action, which obviously would potentially lead to trauma of the tissue and also potentially could lead to degradation of the t of the tissue fibers and leaving them within the canal so it's important that it's a wicking action but again that's something that's pretty much available anywhere and, and utilized very effectively in third world countries and also in remote parts of australia and in aboriginal community projects as well so that's been shown to be very effective what would your first line of topical treatment be after the debris had been removed, either via uh, a modified wall suction device or wicking of the external ear canal? If the patient has significant stenosis of the canal, then I do favour putting in some sort of otowick. Now, that's uh, just essentially a device that, that goes in in a, in a hard state, and then as soon as it comes into contact with any moisture, it expands into a sponge-like material. 
and they're extremely useful in my I, I, I've found anyway um, there is some concern about the trauma that they could cause but I've, I've not experienced that but in the absence of that I think the choice of antibiotic in my hands would first line would always be a um, would be siloxin which is a ciprofloxacin based uh, topical antibiotic I think given that 90% of these infections will be bacterial, that's a good starting point, unless you're seeing any of those key signs of fungal. And um, that has extremely wide coverage and covers all of the major pathogens that we've described. So it's, it's, it's also known to be, well, there's been no reports of any ototoxicity with it, so it's an extremely safe medication to use. And I would favour that um, over the older generation um, topicals. And how long and how much would you uh, do you prescribe for patients? One of the benefits of that particular drug <clears throat> is, that, is it has a fairly long half-life and can be given BD or twice a day, as opposed to some of the older medications which um, uh, require uh, three times a day or TDS uh, application, uh, which is useful if it's a, if it's a, a child patient or, or a patient that doesn't particularly uh, like having the drops placed. So I think a BD application is enough. Um, if I'm particularly concerned, I may even suggest a TDS application of, of that drug as well. In terms of the number of drops, I, I always tell my patients you, you cannot overdose on this drug. So just make sure that enough goes in. I'd rather too much went in than not enough. And I think we'll come on to it later, but one of my my main points and one of the reasons I think people people's otitis externa doesn't get treated properly is the simple fact that the drug doesn't get to where it needs to go. So if you don't put enough drops in, then it's not going to do its job. So I, I tend to say three to four drops, but I say err on the side of more than less. Now to backtrack slightly, how do you manage patients with otitis externa given that you have access to both microscope and suction? Yeah, I think the, the key thing, if you have access to everything that you need, the key thing is to perform a meticulous ear toilet. I think it cannot be stressed enough how important that is because cleaning the canal thoroughly and getting as much of the debris out will facilitate the drops getting to where they need to be. It will mean that the drops have less work to do because you've removed the majority of the pathogens. Um, and uh, in terms of the patient's pain and um discomfort, the more you can get out on that first session, I think the better. So I think a really meticulous, take your time, um, clean all of the areas, um, make sure and commonly you think you've cleaned the whole canal and then you get the patient to tilt their head over and angle the microscope up and you'll find there's a whole other area that you've missed. So it's making sure you don't miss those areas and clean it all out. I think that's extremely important. And if it is painful for the patient, let them have a break, come back, do it again. But don't let them leave until you've done a complete ear toilet. So that's the critical thing. Then the second thing is is giving the patient extremely well, extremely clear instructions as to how to manage their ear when they leave your clinic. So I give them written instructions saying exactly what I want them to do. And then the third thing is making sure you see them again frequently. So don't let it go too long between visits because often the debris will reaccumulate and then you're kind of back to square one. So cleaning them out frequently is, I think, extremely important. 
In your opinion, what's the utility of a swab in these patients? So I, I don't tend to favour that in the first instance. I don't think it changes my management. And the vast majority of these will get better. It's rare to have a case that requires second-line therapy. But in those situations where you're not winning and things aren't going in the right direction, then I'll take a swab, so second line. And the main thing you're looking for really often is, is for occult fungus that, uh, that hasn't had the usual clinical signs um, rather than um, a, a resistant bacteria because, to be honest, bacterial resistance is somewhat meaningless in the, in the ear in the presence of topical antibiotics because the, the dose that you are able to give topically is so incredibly high compared to a systemic dose that it often overrides the, well, it'll often be more than the, the minimal required dose to kill these bacteria, even though that on, on an agar plate they, they come back as, as resistant. The reality is that the doses you give um, are far exceed the necessary dose. Um, so, um, so I'm not doing it so much to look for resistant bacteria as to look for the presence of fungi. But also, if if you're going to, if you are going to move on to systemic therapies, then I think it's important to 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 know which bacteria you're dealing with, so you can target that specifically. And what do you see as the role for oral antibiotics in these patients? Yeah, so very rare. I would say um, the only situation I think it's imperative is if they've got a, a cellulitis um, spreading uh, in the posterior region. They've got proptosis of the pinna. Um, they've got cellulitis of the of the pinna itself, or extending down the neck. In those situations, they need admission to hospital, usually intravenous antibiotics, um, culture directed. And, uh, and, and it's important also to, to draw around the cellulitis so that you can gauge whether it is improving or not uh, on a daily basis. So it, that those are the sorts of situations where systemic antibiotics really have a role. But in, the, in your standard odo, uh, otitis externa, I don't think they play a major role at all because the dose is so low. And what about the role of oral steroids in patients with otitis externa? Yeah, I, I, I haven't found that particularly useful. Um, I think topical steroids have a, a very big role, particularly in um, stenosed canals. But um, the side effect profile of uh, systemic steroids, uh, I don't think the risks, uh, I, don't, I think, outweigh the benefits in that case. So it's, uh, it's almost unheard of for me to use them. When, in your opinion, do you decide to fill the ear, ear canal with ointment uh, and what ointment do you use? For me, that's kind of almost the last resort. I will try the other mechanisms first and I'll give them at least um, two to three weeks before I'll, I'll opt for um, filling the canal with ointment. But in those situations, it, it is often extremely successful. I tend to favour kenicome otic. I think um, it's... Uh, has a lot of good qualities to it. Um, it's an ointment for starters, so it's not a cream. So it, uh, it's uh, uh, less water-based than some of the other preparations. It uh, contains uh, an antibiotic as well as an uh, antifungal. Yeah, I found it to be uh, well tolerated by the patients in the addiction. Um, and the, it also has a steroid within it as well. So it, it's a pretty it's a pretty good option, I think. Otherwise, a lot of people will, will have a... A pharmacy makeup is a combination for them, but 
this is off the shelf. It's ready to go. It's easily uh, acquired. So I, I just go for that. How do you change your management in patients with otitis externa in the presence of a perforation? So one of the problems with all of these ototopical medications is the risk of ototoxicity. Um, and there's pretty good evidence now that if the tympanic membrane is intact, you can give pretty much anything uh, relatively safely. So, you know, the, a lot of the guidelines that have come out have said if, if, the, if the tympanic membrane is intact, then it doesn't, you don't need to worry too much about uh, whether it's ototoxic or not. But if, the, if there's a, a ventilation tube or a grommet or, or a perforation, that's a different matter because then, of course, um, there's the potential for those drugs to get into the middle ear. And, of course, from there, they can cross the, the round window membrane and get into the inner ear and, and potentially cause um, either vestibular or cochlear damage. So so it's a difficult situation um, in fungal infections, but not so much in bacterial because siloxin is, um, is, has been shown to be extremely safe in, in, the, in the middle ear. So you have to be a little bit careful with combination preparations such as CIPRA-HC um, because they are also they also have an acidifying agent and that can be um, ototoxic but again there's very limited evidence to, to actually support that it's ever caused any ototoxicity but um, you'd be very wary of using any of the immunoglycoside based um, antibiotic drops in, in the presence of any sort of perforation uh, I'd be very wary of that, particularly the um, gentamicin-based ones, but uh, neomycin may be slightly safer, but still, <coughs> as an aminoglycoside, it's, it's uh, not recommended uh, at all in the presence of a perforation. Um, and even though it may not be, may not affect their hearing, of course, uh, it's quite likely that it will affect their balance. So that, that is probably under-reporting in terms of how much vestibular toxicity there is, um, even if it's not uh, cochleo uh, toxic. Uh, so, in the presence of with, with, with fungal infections, it's um, it is difficult because most of the fungal uh, antifungal agents um, have been shown in animal models to have some ototoxicity. Um, there haven't been, to my knowledge, any um, uh, any significant reports of ototoxicity in humans, but. But there is always that theoretical risk. And so what I usually do in the, if there is a, a perforation is to paint the canal with um, uh, either canistin cream or kenicum otic ointment. Now, the trouble with using kenicum is that it contains an aminoglycoside. Um, so you have to be very careful with that. Um, if you use canistin, that, that's um, relatively safe. Um, so that would be my first option. Um, especially if it's a large perforation. The other thing that's important to, to do is to um, consent the patient appropriately, tell them that the agent you'll be using is potentially um, ototoxic, um, and, and give them warning of what to look out for. So importantly, if they develop tinnitus, if they develop dizziness, if they develop any hearing loss, then to immediately contact you and, of course, cease the medication. So they can play a role in also monitoring this themselves. Um, and um, that's, that's the way I tend to, uh, to treat things. So to, I initially paint the area, and uh, if need be, I will use a, a drop 
but with very strict instructions to the patients of what to look out for. Is there a role uh, for imaging in otitis externa, in your opinion? Not really. I don't think so. Um, not in your standard infections. Of course, if there's any um, neoplastic concerns, then that's, uh, that's a slightly different situation. And of course, in, um, in cases of malignant metitis externa or um, um, skull-based osteomyelitis, then, then imaging has, uh, has a role. But um, in your standard case, I don't think there is any, any benefit in imaging. What is the role for dry ear precautions in these patients? Critical, I would say. I would say one of the absolute cornerstones of, uh, of getting these patients better is, is absolute uh, water precautions. So um, I think it's mandatory that they don't swim until the infection is sorted out because it doesn't matter what earplug you use, um, plenty of studies have shown that water still gets in. And it's crucial when they shower that they use a, uh, well, I suggest they use a cotton wool uh, soaked in uh, Vaseline or coated in Vaseline. And it's really, again, important to stress that they shouldn't be using an earplug. So they should not use Bluetack or an earplug or any sort, any sort of device that they will reuse because they will reinfect their ear canal. So whatever they use, it has to be something that they throw in the bin afterward, after the uh, shower. So it's, it's critical that they don't put something back in the ear canal which is going to reinfect them. Um, but in my opinion, um, keeping the water out is crucial. What are the commonly seen complications associated with otitis externa? The complications can be either related to the infection itself and spreading in an undesirable way, so either um, spreading towards the, the pinna and the neck, as we've already mentioned, and causing a cellulitis, or of course spreading more medially and causing a skull-based osteomyelitis or, or malignant otitis externa. Sometimes the infection can lead to a perforation, and that's uh, more commonly seen with aspergillus fungal infections, but it can happen um, with se severe infections of any kind. There can be the situation where, where you get a sort of granular or uh, bullous meningitis, which is where the inflammation gets into the uh, tympanic membrane itself and, and, and leads to infection and inflammation in that region. And then the other sort of way that uh, this can lead to complications is through chronicity and um, uh, chronic uh, changes within the canal. And so that can be either just sort of uh, thickened, um, stenosed, canal wall or can even lead to um, medial canal stenosis and, and complete um, sort of thickening of the medial aspect of the canal leading to a, a permanent conductive hearing loss. As rare as medial canal stenosis is, if you see a patient who is developing that in front of you, what treatment do you give that patient at that time? That is a very scary experience when it happens and thankfully, as you say, it's rare. The key thing, I think, in those situations is to see them regularly. Don't let it go too long between visits because things get out of control fairly quickly. So um, the use of um, odor wicks can help, uh, creating some sort of pressure to keep the canal open. The, uh, again, meticulous uh, oral toilets on a regular basis uh, to remove the debris and try and decrease the uh, pathogenic load. 
and um, and of course uh, use of um, uh, steroid-based medications. And potentially that is an area where um, a, a systemic steroid may play a role. In terms of incisions and so on, they're, they're rarely useful um, because generally it's on a broad plane. If there is uh, a thin stenotic area, once the infection's settled, then of course that could be incised and opened up. But during the acute uh, change, I haven't found it to be useful. It just causes a lot of bleeding and then granulation tissue and then often more vigorous stenosis uh, following the incision. So I think you're better off not traumatizing the skin in any way, but trying to get uh, an otowick in there and uh, getting the ototopicals, including a steroid-based one, in uh, as, as often as, as, as much as possible. What is your opinion as to whether you recommend patients having long-term ototopical therapy for their otitis externa? In the vast majority of cases, you can get these under control within a couple of weeks. The vast majority you can get within a couple of days. But if it's going longer than two weeks, you have to question are you doing the right thing. Uh, and you have to go go back to square one and look at, have you got the right pathogen? Is this, in fact, a fungal infection? Have you got the right ototopical? Are you actually treating the condition that needs to be treated? And then look at, is the patient actually compliant with the medication? Okay, so sometimes you'll you'll give them a script for medication, but they won't actually um, get the drug for four or five days, and then they're seeing you two days later. And, and in that situation, they've only had two days of therapy. So make sure the patient is actually using the advice and, and, and using the medications you've recommended. And also go through with them who's putting the drop in. Is it themselves, or can it be a friend or a family member? Because there's studies to show that it's it's extremely more successful if you can get someone else to put the drop in for you. Make sure they're using enough drops, make sure they're doing it in the right way, make sure they're using tragal pressure afterwards to ensure that the, the drops get to where they needed to go. So if you're not winning, then just question why you're not winning, uh, rather than just persisting with just prescription after prescription after prescription. And if you are in a situation where a patient has been on prescriptions for a long time, then, then you might question whether it's actually an infection at all or is this in fact an allergic reaction to the drops themselves in which case of course ceasing the drops may be the best way forward so i, I think generally long-term ototopicals their only role really is in cases such as malignant otitis externa in 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 other cases they really long-term therapy doesn't have a place do you see a role for the application of topical peroxide to patients in otitis externa? I, I haven't used that much in, in, in my clinical practice. I've used it for dissolving wax and so on, but there are other products on the, on the market that are perhaps more effective than that. But I haven't found it useful in, in infective cases personally. In a subset of patients with recurrent acute otitis externa, their etiology is almost certainly exostoses, uh, which may be present in the canal. Uh, when do you consider an exostectomy is appropriate uh, in relation to frequency of otitis externa? We obviously see a lot of that in the patients we see here in Sydney because of the water exposure in, in the surfing community. Um, and exostectomy is very much an elective procedure, generally. Um, and it, I really gauge it on the patient's quality of life and how it's affecting that. 
So if they get one infection a year and it's not bothering them too much, then, then clearly they're not a candidate for surgery. If it is more frequent than that and they're, and they're finding they're getting water trapping and wax impaction, which then leads to conductive period loss, then they're obviously the candidates we consider for surgery. But in the presence of a chronic otitis external or, or um, an issue such as that, I think you'd have to be very careful about operating on those patients. The likelihood is you'd end up with a, an infective mess at the end of it. I mean, one of the key parts of exosthesis surgery is skin preservation and um, preserving that skin envelope. And if that, in, if that if that skin is all infected and, and chronically inflamed, then you, you're going to end up with uh, a lot of skin loss during your surgery. And I think um, I'd be very reluctant to operate on, on, on a chronic otitis external. I'd want to get the infection fully under control, get them stable, and then consider surgery electively. We've just touched on it briefly, um, but could you just briefly run through the etiology of chronic otitis externa as it's, uh, it is usually different to acute otitis externa? Yeah, well, I think probably chronic otitis externa is is actually acute otitis externa, which hasn't been treated properly. <laughs> I think rather than it being a magic difference bacteria that's created a biofilm or done anything differently, it probably, in reality, is one that's been allowed to fester and, um, and get uh, to the stage where it's deep-seated and the tissues are so inflamed that they're hard to clean and clear of the pathogen. So that's probably what's going on. They, they talk about certain bacteria like Proteus and so on being more associated with chronic otitis externa, but I think the reality is that if you stick to the game plan and if you stick to the sort of key aspects of therapy, then we shouldn't see that much chronic otitis externa. Is there a potential allergic or um, dermatological etiology that you suspect in patients with chronic otitis externa? Yeah, they, they, there is. I, I see, it's extremely rare, I think, but patients can have an allergic reaction to some of the, um, either some of the antibiotics, um, like midneomycin, or, or some of the precipitates or some of the um, parts of the medication which aren't actually the active parts. So that, that's entirely possible. But um, additionally, there is a, there's an interesting condition called dermatophytic reaction where the patient can actually have a distant uh, fungal infection like uh, athlete's foot or, so, or somewhere distant, uh, off commonly in the foot actually, and then have an allergic reaction systemically elsewhere, so uh, often in, in the ears. And it, it is out there and, you, and, and it's a case of, of thinking of it, as is often the case with these rare things. So I saw a case of it just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and if you hadn't asked the patient whether they had a, a twisted fungal infection, of course it would never come up in conversation. But the patient had a, a severe chronic uh, fungal infection of their foot, uh, which had never been treated, which they'd, um, they'd uh, obtained when they'd been travelling overseas uh, several years ago. And then they'd had years of, of just grumbling um, otitis externa, which was uh, which had involved canal stenosis, never grew anything on swab, um, and never had any pus as such. But the canal was uh, chronically inflamed, stenosed, and that 
that patient is, is now under investigation for an in reaction or a donative fitted reaction because that's, you know, the sort of patient where this might be the, the situation. And, and the treatment for those tends to be actually immunotherapy. And, um, and that's been shown to be effective in, in, in small case series. So yes, that there are unusual forms of chronic otitis externa, but they're extremely rare. And, um, of course, you know, if you hear who's, it's a horse, not a zebra. So think of the common things first. Most likely be bacterial infection. Uh, if not, could be fungal, but the allergic reactions, chronic otitis externa, extremely rare. Yes, they're out there, but extremely rare. Well, Dr. Saxby, I'd like to thank you for your time this evening and uh, excellent comments in relation to otitis externa. I'd just like to ask you whether there was an issue that we didn't cover tonight which you feel is important that needs to be stressed or perhaps there's an issue which you'd like to reiterate in terms of the management of this uh, challenging condition. Yeah, I think I think the final word is to say that um, these patients need meticulous, regular oral toilets. That is the absolute key thing. They need absolute water precautions and they must have compliance with their uh, antibiotic uh, or antifungal medicines. So written instructions clearly stating how to put the drops in, how to manage their ear, uh, and uh, stressing the importance of, of, of the topical medications. I think if you do that, you have every chance of clearing the infection quickly and properly. Well, thank you again, Dr. Saxby, and tune in to the ENT Expert Opinion podcast series for further podcasts. Music.